Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hello again to all our listeners on Main Street and on Wall Street and in the financial markets everywhere. You're listening to episode 17 of Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon co-founder and managing partner. We have another great show lined up with Dick and Matt. We'll talk about what is happening in the world of cryptocurrencies right now with all the market turmoil. And in our main section, we'll do a deep dive into Dick Bove's latest research on the financial system from the US Treasury and Fed to the banking industry and wider economy. Dick has some new numbers and findings, and all of that is coming right up after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, wow, we're at episode 17. How about that? Lots to talk about in our main segment later. Dick will share with us his latest research on our financial system with a broad look across the board from the US Fed and Treasury and the banking system and much more. He has a lot of new numbers. He'll look at where we are going, talk of recession and how he sees us coming out of this and who will benefit. Busy times, Dick and Matt. Uh, interesting to read where ex-Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke said the U.S. could be headed into a period of stagflation with high inflation and low economic growth. Last week, we saw our rate of inflation dip slightly to 8.3%. Maybe that shows some signs of hope. We'll see. And we are still seeing talk of COVID and shutdowns and some fears out there. And now turmoil in the crypto markets in line with the plunge in the stock markets. Try to make sense of this, gentlemen. I'd like to start with the cryptocurrency market because uh, it's been an unbelievable turmoil over the last couple of weeks. And literally, uh, if the figures are correct, hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost in that market. The question is why? Uh, and the question is, what, where are we going uh, in, in this sector? And I think you have to start with the fact uh, that we've mentioned before in some of these podcasts, which is, what is the need that cryptocurrencies meet? In other words, the, the theory is that Bitcoin would first be used in transactions. Two, it would avoid the inflation created by fiat currencies, governments trying to bolster their currencies to bolster their economies. It would be a store of value 
and it would be universally used, you know, in, in many places to pay taxes. Because if, if you can't use the cryptocurrency to pay your taxes, you've got a problem because the government just won't accept it as money. And I think uh, what we, we've come to in, in the past two weeks is, you know, an investigation on the part of investors into all of these issues. And what they're discovering is, number one, there are 13,000 cryptocurrencies. You can start a cryptocurrency for $15, and you can spend that $15, set up a meeting through uh, the firms that do this, and your cryptocurrency is out there in the marketplace, and you can start to make money on it. Uh, and I've known people who have done this. Number two, you know, uh, there are close to 500 exchanges on which these 13,000 cryptocurrencies trade. Uh, which means that there are prices put out there in the marketplace uh, as if these are, you know, realistic currencies. Uh, number three, you know, none of this is regulated. I mean, basically, if you know, a company wants to issue a stock, it has to go to the SEC uh, if it's if it's going to be issued to more than 25 people. It, it, they have to go to the SEC with a prospectus. The SEC takes, you know, two, three months, uh, supposedly 90 days to review this prospectus to determine whether it is a fair statement of the company's situation. In other words, it's not making a recommendation on the prospectus, just is this honest information about this company? If the SEC decides that's the case, you know, you can then issue stock and hopefully people will buy it. However, if you're dealing with a cryptocurrency, you don't go to the SEC, you don't go to anybody. You just pay 15 bucks, you're in the marketplace and you're out there pushing your currency. And what we're finding in the last couple of weeks that possibly a lot of the information which these companies uh, or these cryptocurrency creators are putting out is simply spurious. You know, the failure in um, two uh, supposed stable coins which supposedly were backed, you know, dollar for dollar with, you know, uh, credible with, with credible assets, you know, we find that the, the assets are not there. Uh, Luna is, is basically bankrupt. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, uh, Tether is doing okay, but Terra also seems to have gone under. And, you know, people have had, if, if the press is correct, hundreds of billions of dollars invested in these cryptocurrencies stable coins, places where you go to protect your money if everything else is, is coming apart. Uh, so, you know, in essence, there is a loud cry for regulation at this point. People have lost, and it's not coming from the government, it's coming from the holders of these currencies. People are now upset. Coinbase is now up against, you know, you know tremendous negative uh, kickback from the marketplace. You know this this stock is this is a stock and it's dropped from three hundred and fifty dollars you know uh, down to roughly sixty five to seventy dollars uh, in a period of less than a year. So you know the, the issue is the holders now are saying, Mr. Government, you keep talking about creating regulation in this area. You keep talking about protecting us, but you're not doing anything other than talk. And therefore, we're losing hundreds of billions of dollars because you're refusing to accept your responsibility to regulate. So we're about to enter, in my view, 
a new era of looking at these cryptocurrencies uh, that uh, you know we, we we haven't looked at before. Get your own pal off the phone. <laughs> yeah, Matt, you have when, something to say here. I agree with you, Dick. That we're we're about to enter a new era. I think I think there's a a good joke, um, or an old joke. I think it was Joe Rogan actually said it. With it. the difference between a re- religion and a cult is a religion the founder is dead a cult the founder is still alive <laughs> and michael saylor has <laughs> twisted that on bitcoin to say the difference between a cryptocurrency and a security is the founder is involved or the founder is not involved and he's a bitcoin maximalist and, and one of his arguments for bitcoin maximalization is that um satoshi nakamoto is no longer with us or no longer present or no longer active and so he created Bitcoin and he disappeared. When you talk about Luna and Terra, I mean, my goodness, this is this is a classic Ponzi scheme where the founder, you know, as this thing was collapsing, there's a lot of stuff on Reddit that talks about how the founders are taking the bit the Bitcoin that was backing the stable coin and just selling it for themselves. And early investors get are making walking away with all the money. And I think it's it's really fascinating to see that, one, people are now noticing that founders that control these cryptocurrencies, and there's only one cryptocurrency that I'm aware of that doesn't have a founder basically out there touting it, supporting it, navigating these rough waters. You know, Tether has a board. Tether has a, has, has people there behind it um, public, publicly. Um, Luna, you know, the, the collapse of Luna and Terra. You know, Michael Novogratz, the, the famous former Goldman Sachs guy that runs Galaxy Digital, he put money into it. I mean, they're, they're almost, they're these quasi like weird, um, I, don't, I don't know, conglomerations because they're not, they're not the same as corporations that go out there and say, hey, we're raising money to launch a video game or whatever they're trying to do. They're basically saying we're going to launch a, they don't use the word, but they're launching a Ponzi scheme. And, and and then they're trying to get people to come in and invest with them. And they're doing it, you know, outside of any securities regulations. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how, how they try to crack down on this because digital currencies, as much as you want to say, you know, the SEC could step in and, and stop this. Luna and Terra were launched out of South Korea. You know, it's, it's code on a computer. Like, you know, are, are they going to literally ban the, the code coming to America? And letting people put in their money. I mean, I, I think the the bigger thing behind this is that just the random investor, eyes wide open, now knows it's just a house of cards. And so, what's what's to support any cryptocurrency going forward? Because it's broken. The system doesn't work. The theory doesn't work. I think the, the argument for Bitcoin is slightly different. But like, what's regulation going to do? Uh, you know, it's it's more of the greater fool theory. As soon as you run out of fools, then you know, then, then this whole cast of cards of things is going to stop. Well, what we're seeing is, uh, again, a search for value. In other words, let's assume that, uh, you know, these, these are honest men attempting to, uh, and women who are attempting to determine uh, an alternative to fiat currencies, and they're attempting to do it by creating an entity that will allow them to, to do that. And, and what, therefore, are they offering? They're offering something that can be used for transactions. And we know that there is no cryptocurrency at the moment, which can be used by, let's say, the mass market for handling transactions. Uh, and we know that blockchain is, is not the right, uh, if you will, technology, if we're going to deal with what would ultimately be millions and millions, maybe billions of transactions. 
it would be billions of transactions. Blockchain can't handle that. So Bitcoin fails and other, other cryptocurrencies fail on that basis. Second thing is, you know, they offer, you know, that this would be a store of value that unlike fiat currencies, which can be basically uh, inflated by governments seeking money and printing the currency, uh, you know, there is no, if you will, stable, if you will, base on which any cryptocurrency operates because it's as volatile is much more volatile than, than any fiat currency in, in a reputable nation. Uh, you know, Zimbabwe, we can, Venezuela, you know, we might argue are not reputable uh, issues of, of fiat currencies. But then, then the third thing is, uh, you know, can, can you use this stuff, you know, to um, basically pay your taxes? And that's critical. You have to be able to use it to pay your taxes Otherwise, your government will not accept it. Otherwise, you have to have fiat currency. All right, so what now happens? We know that all those things don't exist in these cryptocurrencies. So what are the people doing who are working, you know, honestly, diligently to create the right type of cryptocurrency? Well, they're attempting to, to attack the speed issue you know, getting the speed up in which transactions are approved so that this can be transaction-based. They're working in terms of attempting to create some type of basic, stable uh, backing for the currency so that it will work. Uh, they're working, you know, with, you know, governments that are incredible in my estimation, Ecuador, etc. you know, to, to, to get them paid, you know, for, for taxes. And when you take a look at the big ones, that, that are working honestly to create a real currency, this is what they're doing. Then there's the, the ones that have taken a different approach, and that is to set up some value chain. And this is the non-fungible, uh, if you will, token approach uh, to set up a value chain so that you can swap your currency for the the if you will, non-fungible tokens in this value change and create real value. And Ethereum, of course, is the leader in that area. But to, to this point, none of it has worked. And therefore, what are these things? These things are securities. And if they're securities, and if they want to be sold in the United States, they've got to go through the SEC and they've got to be registered and they've got to create prospectuses. And I think that's the next step. And once that step is taken, then I think we can start to look at these things as, as viable investment vehicles, which is what they are, and, and determine whether we want to own them or not. I mean, I'm wondering right now, are we looking at a tulip mania all over again? Um, and the other interesting thing that stands out with crypto, I mean, wasn't it seen by analysts and some big investors as you know an alternative investment, not correlated to the stock market? And now it's plunging along with the market, which raises another point. If the market comes back eventually, could crypto come back? So what's not to love about that? Even though I'm a huge skeptic of the crypto market, I'm broadly in agreement with both of you there. I think, I think there's a difference between the crypto market and the Bitcoin market. I mean, there, there are Bitcoin maximalists who think that everything but Bitcoin, they call them shit coins, <laughs> including the US dollar. Um, but the, I mean, the idea, the, another good joke for us is, you know, that Bitcoin is supposed to be an inflation hedge 
And, um, you know, it, it's working better than the U.S. dollar because it lost 50% of its value over a period where the U.S. dollar only lost 8% of its value. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's seven times better than the dollar at, 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 at depreciation. But I, 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 think, um, I think Dick's right that, that at some point in time, these, these coins are going to have to be listed as securities because there's no way around it. That, that's what they are. In terms of them being tulip mania, I, you know, it's 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 just such a it's the the pitch is so different than the reality, and I think that's what Luna and Terra is waking everyone up to. Is Luna was supposed to be a stable coin? Mm. It was supposed to be a dollar no matter what. It had a an algorithm that made sure that it was always going to be a dollar, and it took just a weak moment of liquidity, or some people think a coordinated campaign. And now it's worth zero. I mean, I know it's still trading around 30 cents, but that's just because some people are just irrational, I, I guess, because it's the linkage is broke. The algorithm is broke. It's worth nothing. All of these cryptocurrencies are worth nothing. And you hear, hear Sam Bankman-Fried talk um, on the Odd Lots podcast. He described what they are. And he basically said, it's a magical box. You put money into it and you hope someday that enough people put enough money into these boxes that eventually they'll have something magical that they do with them. And it's more like Jack the Beanstalk in the sense that you hope that someday the magical box that you picked somehow miraculously becomes something that it's not, and then you'll get rich. You know, I, I don't think that, that anything but Bitcoin has a shot of making it. And then to your point, Bitcoin has in the last six months, it's a 90% correlation with the NASDAQ, and it has an even higher correlation, inverse correlation with volatility. It's not a it's it's not a stable asset. It's not digital gold because if it was, it wouldn't have, you know, daily swings of three or four or five or ten percent. You know, gold sometimes moves two or three percent, so it's a little bit different than a currency. But you never see the euro or the yen or um, any real currency move more than half, you know fifty basis points in a day is a shocking move. And you'd have to get, I would think, you'd have to get Bitcoin. Or anything that alleges to be a cryptocurrency to get to that small movement before you can actually say it's a stable asset. I mean, compare it to like real estate where, you know, the prices move, but like they move slowly over time, largely due to GDP and inflation, but they don't move 5% in a day or 10% in a day. Like there's, there's no way that that's a stable asset. And so I, I agree with Dick that the regulation is coming, but I think before you get to regulation, you have to define what it is that they're trying to do. And if they're trying to become payment systems, then they need to be better, faster, and easier than Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Venmo. Like we have these things that work. And then the idea that, oh, well, we're going to be off the grid and deregulated and, and that makes it safer. Well, that's bunk and it's been debunked. So, well, see, that's the issue. In other words, you, we, we've got, let, let's assume, although people would argue that Solana right now is pretty good. Uh, because it's using the same concept as uh, Ethereum and, and using non-fungible tokens as the, the source of value for, for owning Solana. But, um, you know, and, and who knows? I mean, I think some of the artwork behind uh, these uh, things is, is actually excellent. It's, it's uh, you know, some of this ape stuff is really, really attractive in my view. But anyway, the point is, all right, so let's assume they all, as you just said, have, are valueless except for Bitcoin. What is it that Bitcoin offers other than a speculative investment in technology and in, in, in unknown technology? What is it that creates value here? 
you can't, I, the blockchain is not going to work in terms of, uh, you know, basically handling transactions. I mean, the blockchain technology, as you're well aware, um, basically has to have every transaction approved by supposedly every computer that, uh, you know, the blockchain is on. And those computers may be a cell phone somewhere. They may be somebody's laptop. And the net effect is, you know, there's no way to even get to those cell phones or to those laptops to, to determine whether they agree to this particular transaction. So it might take six, seven hours. You go to Macy's to buy a shirt and it takes seven hours to get the payment approved. I mean, so that doesn't seem to be the answer. Bitcoin doesn't seem to have the superior technology, which is it was touted as having. Obviously, as you just indicated, it's certainly not a storage of value. So where can it come up with value other than trying to convince the world that this is as good as gold? You know, I mean, how does it get value? That's the thing that I'm, I'm struggling with with. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I can argue Bitcoin a little bit better than the other ones. And by the way, you mentioned NFTs and, you know, there's a fatal flaw in the NFT, which is the NFT that you buy on the blockchain refers to generally some website where that image is stored. And anyone who owns that website can swap out your image for a different image at any point they want to. And there's no guarantee that they won't, or there's no guarantee that that particular device that's storing your image won't you know, go down in a flood or a fire or just gets unplugged one day and all of a sudden your NFT that you, you still own the right to that web, that web address, but the image that you think you own might, might be gone. You know, um, I, agree with you. I agree with you. In, in terms of, I, I think the difference between Bitcoin and every other digital currency is that there's no wizard behind the curtain running things. And I think that is actually a faith promoting aspect of it. The other thing that I would argue in terms of Bitcoin versus gold is I've never tried it, but I understand that if you try to take a pound of gold with you to Dubai or to Mexico or any cross any border with a pound of gold, you won't be allowed to do it or someone will take it from you. Whereas Bitcoin, you can, as, you know, as long as the computer network is running, you can access it anywhere in the world where you have computer access. So in theory, it's a more portable type of gold. And I think there's a shot that in the future it does stabilize. And, you know, and we're still only 12 years into Bitcoin being in existence. So I think there's a chance in the future that it becomes a store of value when it, when it stops being so volatile. But you still have the problem. I think I think something like ninety percent of all bitcoins are held in two um, or three percent of the wallets. So there's a huge concentration of wealth that controls mm. the whole thing, mm. and I think that needs to be dispersed much more widely before Bitcoin can actually have um, broad network effects and becoming a, a, a true currency. But as of now, it sure doesn't seem like the system is working the way that um, Satoshi pitched it. Well, it's still um, the problem you still have is is getting the video game players out of the uh, currency. In other words, what what I'm understanding is that uh, you know young people who uh, grew up playing video games see this whole area as a new shot at video games. In fact, one of the newest uh, mechanisms that are being used is the five minute trade. In other words, you, you go in and you buy and you automatically sell after five minutes uh, and you leverage the purchase, you know, five to one. So if you if you pick the five minute trade properly, 
you get a, a really sizable return uh, by doing it. And, you know, if you're a video gamer and you're used to bang, 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 shooting the guy jumping out from behind the wall, you know, the five-minute trade appeals to you. And, you know, until this type of investing, if we can call it, you know, I mean, if you go to, to, to Las Vegas, it's so much safer <laughs> than this investing, right? Uh, but until this type of investing is wiped out, washed out, gotten gotten rid of, I don't see how you're going to get any stable or rational investing by you know serious people with serious money in 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 this sector. So I, I think it'll continue to be highly volatile. I'm just going to pick you up on that, Dick. Uh, your final advice to investors, institutional is your target here, I guess, retail. Uh, and Matt, that was, that's interesting what you said about trying to bring gold into Dubai. I guess, could you not just smuggle it in? You can smuggle stuff anywhere in the world. Gold is a pretty well, you can sparkling buy item. You can buy that- Krugerrands. That's yeah. not illegal. Krugerrands are gold. You can buy them. Yeah, but we, we, Matt was talking about it. it'll be taken off your gold if you try to bring it no, into no. certain countries. Did I pick that up correct? That's my understanding is that a lot of countries have import and export regulations, or certainly it raises the question. And by the way, what are you going to do with your gold once you get to Dubai? Yeah, right. Like, exactly. You're going to melt it down so that you can you know, <laughs> just have a little bit of a gram so you can buy a, a, a dinner? Like, like what, what purpose does it well, serve? Sure, it, it would be nice to have it, of course. <laughs> but the, the other question was um, the cost of entry, as you were saying, into the cryptocurrency market. And, and you brought that up, Dick. I mean, anybody with a computer savvy brain, a computer nerd can get into this. So it's a really weird and bizarre market. Yeah, there are 13,000 of them, literally 13,000. And there uh, are places that you can go uh, and, and basically get prices on all 13,000. You know, trading on five hundred different exchanges. Um, it's all, it's all on on the internet. Uh, and again, fifteen bucks will, will will allow you to create your own cryptocurrency. So, I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is someone has to come up with a good value argument, which has been certified by a regulator before this becomes more than, you know, the the the. the something that the guys who do the five-minute trades love. Seems to be a lot of um, suspicious characters prowling about in the world of crypto. Final word to investors, Dick and Matt on it. Fire beware. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Matt is Odeon co-founder and managing partner, and Dick is chief financial strategist at Odeon. Well, we have a really interesting main topic, if you will, and Dick has sent me and shared quite a lot of notes on this, and he's going to have to walk us through a lot on what's going on in the financial system. He's broken it out into several periods where we got during the pandemic uh, with the Treasury running up uh, trillions of dollars in deficits. And we had the recessionary impact. What has changed today as we get control of the whole financial system, talk of recession, and how all of this is going to play out with the banking industry, the wider market, and who may indeed come out as the beneficiaries from defense, 
energy industry and manufacturing. So, Dick, break it all out for us. All right. Well, basically, I uh, believe that the financial system is based on money. I mean, money, money, fiat money, dollars, right? So the net effect is uh, the, the analysis that I do tends to track uh, the creation and destruction of money. The um, period from 1919 to 1920 was a period in which uh, there was an enormous amount of money created. The United States government worried uh, terribly for, for, for valid reasons that the pandemic would create a long-lasting recession, which could uh, fall into depression. And it decided, based upon the criticisms it got uh, as to how it handled the uh, Great Recession in 2007-8, it decided to make the money available directly to the households of the United States. They weren't going to go in and bail out banks. They weren't going to go in and uh, provide money to industry. They were going to give money directly to households. And I think uh, the best numbers I've seen suggest that the United States government wound up giving $700 billion to households, all of which they borrowed. So the Treasury ran the biggest deficit in the history of the United States of $4.2 trillion. Once they ran that deficit, they had to go find someone who was going to buy the deficit. Who was going to buy treasuries in the United States government so that the United States government could pay that $4.0 trillion out to households and companies in the economy? And what they discovered is most people didn't want to buy it. So they had to go to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve stepped up and bought, you know, 54% of the end of, of that $4.2 trillion in deficit. So what happens if, if you buy the deficit, if I buy the deficit, if a, a company buys the deficit, in other words, if we buy treasuries, it is not inflationary because what we're doing is we are simply taking money from pool A and putting it to pool B, pool B being the government and private sector being pool A. If the Federal Reserve buys this deficit, If the Federal Reserve buys 54% of $4.2 trillion, they print it. If they print it, they are creating a tremendous inflation. All right. The third thing that you have to look at in following the money uh, is, you know, the banks. Because when the Federal Reserve creates this, uh, you know, additional currency, uh, that currency winds up as deposits in the banking system. And so what we saw in 1990, I'm sorry, in 2019 and 2020 is we saw A, the big deficit, B, the, the tremendous creation of money by the Federal Reserve, and C, the money being dropped into the banks and the banks not using it. In other words, the banks were not lending the money out, creating you know, the multiplier effect, which generates income. They weren't using it. So we, we were in trouble. All right, 2021 comes along, we get a vaccine. The federal government is no longer creating new programs to to spend money, you know, put money out in the economy. So, you know, we don't have to have a $4.2 trillion deficit anymore. It comes in half. All right. And therefore, we still need someone to buy the, the, the we'll say roughly $2 trillion. And, you know, that still happens to be the Federal Reserve they decide they're going to buy 54% of of that deficit also. So they're continuing to print money. The money is 
sitting in the banking system because the banking system still hasn't really lent very much of it. We get to 2022, the banking system is now lending the money. The Federal, the, the Treasury, the Treasury deficit this year, assuming that the, we don't get into a major, you know, recession, the Federal, the, the Treasury deficit this year will be maybe $800 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's peanuts relative to the $4.2 trillion uh, that, we, that we ran in, in, in 2020. Therefore, the Federal Reserve is under no obligation to buy it because it is being bought actually by foreigners who are worried about the war in Ukraine. So the Federal Reserve now can turn around and say, we created this inflation, we're going to go fight this inflation. So the Treasury and the, and, and, and the Federal Reserve are not going to be creating this money, putting it out in the economy, but the banks are, because the banks are now lending the money. We're now seeing you know, an increase in commercial and industrial lending. We're seeing an increase in, in home buying. We're seeing an increase in automobile buying. We're seeing an increase in prices across the board. So the banks are now driving the system. All right, now, where are they going to drive the system to? What, what, where are the loans going to show up? Well, in, in my view, because of the war in the Ukraine, we now have a need to produce more goods in the United States than we did previously. We're going to produce more energy in the United States. We're not going to rely on Russia to provide our energy. We're going to produce more rare earths in the United States. We're not going to go to China to get those rare earths. We're going to produce what, whatever we consider to be critical manufactured goods in the United States. And that means that the banks are going to be pouring money. The government is going to be providing, and they haven't done it yet, but I'm assuming the government will be providing incentives for energy creation, for manufacturing, for, you know, a defense defense spending is going to be beyond belief. Uh, and that is going to go through the banking system. And therefore, that's where I think investors ought to be looking to put their money going forward. Great, Dick. It was an interesting number came out um, last week, but the Fed is bringing in a lot more revenues in this environment. Is that because of the inflation adjusted? I mean, is there any positive signal from that and all of this? Yeah, well, it's not the Fed bringing in the revenue. It's the Treasury. You know, Treasury, people, I stand corrected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, the point is that um, you're right. Uh, in essence, uh, more people are working. That means more tax collections there. Uh, corporations are not getting harmed by the inflation. They're benefiting from it. So there's more tax collections there and inflation is occurring. So, you know, if you take a look at, at personal tax collections, corporate tax collections, uh, tax collected from other things that the federal, you know, import export, uh, you know, uh, fees that, that the government is collecting, what, what you're seeing is this unbelievable increase in the uh, revenue collections of the United States Treasury. At the same time as they're collecting more and more revenue, they're paying out less and less because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's not $700 billion being handed out to households to protect them against the impact of, of the, 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 you know, the, the pandemic. So on one hand, the Treasury is dealing with you know, a big surge in its revenue collections. And on the other hand, the costs of running the government have gone down dramatically. 
Now, April is not the best month to use to determine what's going on because that's tax collection month. But we, the, the federal government had a surplus of over $200 billion in the month of April. And if you take the first four months of the year and the CBO and, and Treasury numbers are correct, you know, th there has been such a massive change in the, the uh, deficit situation that it is very likely that we will have a deficit of less than a trillion dollars this year, which is easily funded by all this money, which we can tell by the increase in the value of the dollar, all this money pouring into treasuries from sources overseas. So, you know, we, we, we don't have, we don't have this huge problem of a deficit forcing the Fed to do something that they don't want to do. The Fed is now in a position where they can say, we do want to cut inflation. We do want to kill it. And they are going to take steps, which I think will bring us into a recession briefly uh, in order to bring us back to a stable situation. So I'm looking at 2023 as being a really exciting year for the U.S. economy, the U.S. financial system, for, for households, for businesses. I think it's going to be a great year. Do you think they'll get inflation under control before 2023? Like below their alleged target of 2%? No, no, it's going to take them a long, long time to get down to 2%. I mean, I don't, I don't have any illusions about that. I mean, uh, but the point is, it's not going to be 8.5%. Uh, and I, I don't think it'll be 5%. I think it'll be getting closer to 4 and maybe 3% by the end of 2023. And I think that that's, you know, easily absorbable by income generation if all these other things we're talking about kick in. In other words, if we, if, if we stop putting money into consumer goods that, that have a very low, uh, if you will, multi multiplier in terms of you know, generating a future income, and we start putting it into machines and into uh, research and development, and, and you know, pro not defense because that's not so great in terms of a multiplier, but manufactured goods, energy, that, those type of things, I, I think we can handle 4% inflation without too much difficulty at all. It's interesting to see um, the inflation's impact on the Treasury because it speaks to the point that was raised in previous episodes that we could inflate our way out of trouble with the deficit, even at 4%, to some degree, not fully, but in an odd kind of ironic way, inflation has an upside. Yeah, no, Matt has pointed this out often in, in the prior uh, broadcast that uh, the government uh, likes inflation because that's how it pays its debt. And, and uh, you know, there's no doubt about the fact that that is happening right now. I mean, there's no question. I mean, you know, if everybody's going to get $15 an hour instead of $9 an hour, they're going to start paying tax at $9 an hour. You know, a large portion of the population doesn't pay any taxes whatsoever, right? Because they're mm. also all right, at $15 an hour, they're going to have to pay taxes. All right. And if, you know, oil prices are going to be, you know, who knows? I, I have no idea. We have a great analyst, uh, you know, uh, who, who, who does know this stuff. But um, if, it, if, if energy costs are going to be 100 bucks, a barrel of oil, and I don't know what the price of coal is right now, the government is going to collect a lot of money in taxes off of that industry. So the government is benefiting from inflation tremendously at the present time, and it is a big factor in reducing the deficit. Dick, are you, you are anticipating inflation to come down. Is there any uh, possibility it could keep rising? I mean, last month at 73 
it was pointed out that that factored in lower oil prices in that preceding period. And of course, oil prices surged just as they were announcing the 7.3. So is it a bit early to be saying it's coming down? Annie, do you think it could go up again? No, I don't. I uh, actually, um, I believe when I started this big, uh, you know, inflation concept, uh, you know, 15, 18 months ago, it was based upon one factor. How many dollars is the Federal Reserve creating? And they were creating a lot of them, right? Uh, as it turned out, six trillion of them, uh, which was a forty percent increase in the in the money supply. The Federal Reserve says, and I believe them. I believe them. All right. The Federal Reserve says we're not going to be creating that many dollars. We're going to shrink our balance sheet. In fact, we're going to shrink it by uh, forty-five billion dollars a month for the next couple of months, starting in June, and then we're going to start shrinking it by ninety billion dollars a month. Well, if they're actually going to do that, they're going to be reducing the growth in the money supply to the point where they may actually result in shrinkage of the money supply. If you believe that the increase in money supply created the inflation, you got to believe that a decrease in the money supply kills it. Hmm. If they're going to do it, and I believe they're going to do it, it's going to kill inflation. So I think we, we are going to peak out at inflation at this level, and I think it's going to start to come down. One thing on, on, sorry, John keeps saying 7.3%. The number was actually 8.3%. And if you exclude um, food and oil, it was 6 point, sorry, food and energy, um, it was 6.2%. But the real shocking part, I think, in, in was the month to month growth, which everyone was expecting to be 0.3%. It turned out it was actually 0.6%. So if you annualize it, then you get to that 7.3% number. But again, the, 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 the real question on inflation is the feedback loop. And the one thing that Dick hasn't mentioned, which I think is worth pointing out, is money velocity. And usually money velocity, which is the measurement of how many times a dollar turns over, changes hands in any given year, it's been decreasing, I think, every year for the last 30 or 40 years up until the last six or seven months where money velocity is actually increasing. And traditionally, money velocity goes down in a recession. So I think there's a, a shot that you could, you could have um, money velocity go down and actually drag down the inflation number with it. Now, one thing that I learned, which I did not know, I love learning new things, is the, go- the government issues these, these bonds called I-series bonds that people can buy. Um, you're only allowed to buy $10,000, so it's not, it's not for institutional investors, but it's supposed to be an inflation-protected um, treasury bond that you buy directly from the government. You can actually buy it, I think, on uh, treasurydirect.gov. You just buy it. And right now they're offering treasury bonds to individual investors at 9.62%, which is the best deal you're going to get in the country. But I kind of wonder if that's actually the real inflation rate when you look at it, because it's supposed to be the, the government's version of inflation protected money. Um, you know, so you have all these different numbers out there, you know, the PPI came in at 11%. So all of them are really, really high. And the question is, can they, can they shrink rapidly or can they shrink while we're having a growing economy? And I think the question you know, we, we, we've talked about it a lot, is historically the, the Fed has never been able to get those inflation numbers to come down without triggering a recession. Yeah, no, I, I believe strongly that, uh, unfortunately, I, I find this whole recession issue annoying because it's, protect, it's pre- preventing us from getting on to, you know, rebuilding the economy, I think, on a sounder basis. But I don't see how you avoid it. I don't see how you avoid the recession because 
again, you can't you can't shrink the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, in in my view, and still expect to uh, grow the economy, uh, because all of us. I mean, we've been living for the last. 10 years uh, in, in one sense, and I would argue 25 to 30 years in a greater sense, in that whenever we've needed money, it's been there. The Fed has provided it. I mean, Greenspan's put, you know, became, uh, you know, Bernanke's put, became Yellen's put, became, you know, uh, you know Powell's put. You know, the, the Fed has never stepped up and said, stop, wait, you know, the Fed has always said, we'll give you whatever amount of money you think you need, and we're going to keep giving it to you. Powell, you know, went a little bit off the off the, uh, the beaten track. But the point is, um, not only did they give it to you, but they drove the cost of it down to an incredibly low level. Now, they're going to stop giving it to you, and they're going to increase its cost. In, instead of having a negative real return on investing in financial assets, you're going to get a positive real return on investing in financial assets. So it's it's going to change 25 years of, of money supply at incredibly low rates and put us back into you know uh, less liquidity at real rates that are that are positive. And I think you you can't go from point A to point B without a recession. Matt, you talked in previous episodes that the um Fed could reverse course if you know uh, the market keeps plunging. It may not continue with jacking up interest rates. And yes, eight point three percent inflation. I do stand corrected. It's still a sharp rise in prices. Yeah, I, I, I wonder. You know, the Fed claims or is supposed to be set up to be apolitical, but I mean, we all know that you know they're they're just a political animal, just like anyone else, and. My, my hypothesis is that at some point there's a pain threshold where the, 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 the powers that be or just the sentiment on the street is we're crying uncle. We'd rather have inflation and we, we need cheap money because we can't, we can't handle this. And I've, you know, Dick, Dick has said it a bunch of times and I've said it a bunch of times, you know, coming into June when they start doing QT, which is, I think they're going to stop buying 45 billion of, of bonds in, in June, and then they're going to raise it to 90 billion by September. You know, where is that money going to come from? Who's buying it? And then what are the risk assets that get crushed? And we're already seeing a lot of it because just by talking about it, the stock market, you know, the NASDAQ's down almost 30%. Yeah. Crypto's off over 50%. The S&P is down 18%. And we've only had, um, you know, a, a 75 basis points of increase, and we've had no real QT. I mean, Dick has sent out sends out his weekly numbers of of what the Fed balance sheet's doing, and you know it's it's moving here and there and in the teens, you know, fifteen billion here, fifteen billion there, but like an actual targeted program to reduce balance sheet by hundreds of billions of dollars over the course of a few months. I, I think I think we're going to find out if if Jay has the 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 strong grip to hang on to the chaos that might be coming. Um, not to mention, you know, we're in a high inflationary environment. The East Coast apparently is running short of diesel. The the world is running short of wheat. The world is running short of oil. And now the world's going to be running short of money, all all in this summer of love that uh, the Democrats <laughs> keep talking about. It's going to be it's, it's not going to be a summer of love if if you can't drive to the beach and 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 you have nothing to eat when you get there. But there's a big thing that happened this week. Uh, Jay Powell finally got confirmed as the new chairman of the Federal Reserve. Lael Bernard has been 
approved, uh, have been confirmed also. They confirmed this new uh, lady, um, I, I apologize, I forget her name, uh, on the Fed. So, you know, the game is the game is now totally different. Jay Powell is no longer, you know, trying to figure out how to get enough congressmen to stay in his back. It, it took him six months to get, you know, to get confirmed as the, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve. So he had to be political. Now he's playing for history. Now he doesn't want to go down in the books as Arthur Burns or G. William Miller, you know, the, Nixon's toadies that, that basically did whatever, you know, Nixon told them to do. Now he wants to go down in the books as Paul Volcker, the guy who helped us out of the pandemic and now the guy who helped kill the inflation. So I, the market in the last few days has been going up because they think the Fed is going to blink, right? In other words, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, of the speeches that have been given by these Fed governors led to at least market uh, people believing that the Fed will never stick to what it promises to do. But I, I don't think they're right. I think that if you're Jay Powell at this point in time, what do you care? You care about how the history books are going to treat you. And if you back, if you blink, if you let this thing get further out of control, you're going to be looked at as a fool. If you do what you're supposed to do, and I think he will, you're going to be looked at as a hero. Well, first off, uh, Lloyd Benson knew, knew Paul Volcker. Lloyd Benson was friends with Paul Volcker. And Jay Powell is no Paul Volcker. The difference between Paul Volcker and Jay Powell is Jay Powell caused this. I mean, he he is the, the creator, and now he's supposed to be the, the solution provider, whereas Paul Volcker came in with a clean slate and the ability to come in and reverse course and do the, you know, do, do the difficult things. We're stuck with Jay for, what, four more years? Yeah. And he caused this. So, you know, even, even if he succeeds in, in landing the plane on, and, and he, he's now calling it a soft dish landing is what he's targeting for, which... You know, if you're trying to land on a carrier, the soft landing is in the water. Um, <laughs> the, he, he's, he's, he's not going to go down as the guy that, that saved the economy because he broke the economy. It's, it's, it's a completely different scenario when you're cleaning up someone else's mess when you're, versus when you're cleaning up your own mess. Yeah, you, you're right. But I, I think I just don't think that he wants uh, to see inflation go higher uh, given what history will then say about him, he'll be. Oh, I agree. He doesn't want it to, but like, can he? Does he have the wherewithal? I mean, Paul Volcker basically had a clean slate. He came in right as the presidential election was was. Well, he, I guess he came in just before Reagan, but basically, he had he had a lot of room between what he had to do in the next election and the next confirmation to to fix the the mistakes of the past. I feel like Jay Powell is in a very tight box with a very little limited time horizon on an economy that has a totally different construct than it did in 1980. We have a deficit that's totally different than it was in 1980. We have a, a debt that's totally different than in 1980. And we have a global environment and a global supply chain difference that also makes it really hard to, to hang on and do what he's going to do. I obviously, I hope he succeeds, but I think you know, as you said, it's not going to happen without a, a, a nasty recession. So just to be clear, Dick, so he will stick on, stay on course with raising interest rates and shrink the balance sheet. 
Yes. Well, I don't care what he does with interest rates because I think that's a residual as a result of uh, increasing or shrinking the balance sheet. So, but but I think he will shrink the balance sheet. Yes. And again, um, you, you know, it's it's a very tough. Th- I mean, how can someone who doesn't know the man hasn't spoken to him, you know, tell you what the man thinks and what he's going to do? I, I really can't do that. But. You know, if we take two periods in American history, uh, one, you know, that, that Matt's mentioning, uh, Paul Volcker coming in, Paul Volcker had the support of the nation behind him to kill inflation. The other guy was Mariner Eccles uh, back in uh, the, the late 1940s. World War II ended and inflation was going off the charts uh, uh, once again because money supply had gone off the charts with you know, creating uh, the, the money to to fight the war, number one, and then, the, you know, the war ends and everybody has gone now through 15 years uh, in, in which they actually built their bank accounts. Uh, and so th- there is a supply chain shortage then, not called not called it that at that point, but the demand for goods and services exploded because now people came home from the war, they had money, they started uh, buying houses, cars, they started buying everything. Uh, they were allocating automobiles. Uh, you know, you could only buy a certain number of automobiles if you were a family because the, the demand was was so high. But anyway, the, the bottom line point is, Mariner Eccles was supported by the, the, the Congress and by the American people to kill inflation. G, uh, you know, Paul Volcker was supported by Jimmy Carter, actually, and the American people to kill inflation. I believe if, if you, you take Joe Biden's statements that the biggest threat that they have at the present time is inflation, and you got the American people in the same mode, I think Jay Powell is supported by the, the political system and the American people to kill inflation. So I think he's going to do it. And he's also got an ego. And that ego, in my view, and I apologize for repeating this for the 50th time, that ego says, I don't want, this, I don't want the history books to say that I'm another, you know, Arthur Burns, that I'm another G. William Miller, that I'm a toady to presidents and not, you know, receptive to the needs of the American people. I think he wants history to say, I helped solve the problem during the pandemic. I was the right guy. Uh, and now I'm the right guy to, to get rid of the inflation, to set the economy on a growth path. And I think that's what he's going to be thinking about. And he doesn't have to worry anymore about confirmation. He finally got it <laughs> after six months. Can you believe it took six months for him to get it? And, do you, and, and, and when you think about it, they, they approved Lael Brainard before they approved Powell. So what was, the Congress, what was the message that the Congress was sending, what was sending Jay Powell? You know, watch it, buddy. Don't get us in trouble, right? And what's the message they got now? Get us out of this problem. So I, I, I don't think he's going to blink. Haven't we kind of scapegoated Powell in the sense that he brought us into this mess? I mean, on one level, that's true. He was at the helm. But the world economy, the U.S. economy, wasn't the threshold of a a major depression with the pandemic uh, climate, shutdowns everywhere, people running out of money, households running out of money, everybody out of work. So he was under that universal political and outside pressure to flood the economy with liquidity. I mean, if it wasn't Jerome Powell, it would have been somebody else and his lieutenants. You know, you're right. In other words, the, uh, the, the Trump 
pressure on Powell that got him to do a 180, you know, before the pandemic was there is what has led to people, you know, uh, focusing in on his, uh, you know, he was talking about, I think it was a neutral rate, but but Matt corrected me before. There's, there was a word, you know, he thought there was a neutral rate and he was going to create a neutral rate. And Trump said, no, you're not. And he said, okay, forget it. Let's, let's pump the money supply. But once the pandemic hit, he had no choice because basically $4.2 trillion deficit had to be paid for. The Fed had to pay it, not the whole amount, 54% of it, but the Fed had to pay it and he had to pump the money supply. However, again, if you're him and you're thinking of what, what is the history books going to say 10 years from now, they're, they're going to say, gee, The guy reacted in the right fashion when the country needed him to in providing the money when it was needed. And then the guy reacted in the right fashion by killing, you know, the inflation. So, but I really believe that um, he's not going to blink. I, I think you're a little bit of an optimistic memory on this one, because in May of 2021, which is a year ago, that was the first time we saw a CPI print above 5%. They didn't even start talking about raising interest rates until after he had been renominated, and they basically didn't start raising interest rates until just as he was about to be confirmed. So the idea that he was this, this, you know, this great sailor navigating stormy seas and in, in, in taking this boat and in, in doing everything right, right for the economy, if, if, he was, if he had his thumb on the pulse of the economy and he was actually trying to kill inflation, he could have nipped it in the butter, at least started raising interest rates before he got reappointed. Now, I, I know politically that that was unsavory and it might have cost him his job you know the, the idea that this was not foreseeable i mean you've been calling for high inflation and i was on team transitory but you've been talking about this for a lot longer than jay powell has been reacting to it and you, you have to be blind dumb and deaf to have not notice that the inflation started a year ago and this is the guy that's in charge of it so you know maybe you're right that in the long run history will treat him kindly that says he got us out of this But I think it would have been treated him a lot kinder if he had actually stopped it from ever happening in the first place. Yeah, you, you, you're exactly right. I mean, what you say is exactly correct. Um, he did not do anything to stop the inflation until he got renominated, is, is my view. Uh, and, and, but he's been renominated. He's been confirmed now. You yeah. know, and, and by the way, the woman you, you mentioned earlier was Lisa Cook. She's the uh, first African-American to be on the fair, on the, on the, on the committee. Yeah, the, the lady who was just approved, right. Yeah. And then Lael Brennard was the woman that um, I think everyone thought that Biden was going to nominate to replace Jay Powell in, in instead of renominating Jay Powell. And then eventually he, he stuck with him, but, but Lael Brennard was the, the, you know, waiting in the wings to become the first, um, well, I guess he wouldn't be the first female chair, but to be the, become the chair. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. So Dick, when we uh, come through this recession and you, you see a mild recession, right. And, uh, and then things come back to, normal or a new normal, the banks will sort of pick up on lending and stimulate this whole manufacturing renaissance that you have mentioned so many times? Yeah, well, you know, basically, it was interesting that uh, on Sunday, um, I think it was Face the Nation, uh, you know, Lloyd Blankfein, the ex-chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs, said the same thing. He said that basically, Uh, the United States now understands that it has to manufacture things here. We cannot rely on other countries to provide, you know, critical goods for for the company country. 
And then Warren Buffett, uh, it was announced, uh, something that I thought was you know, uh, emblematic of, of what we're talking about. He dumped the remaining portion of his holdings of uh, Wells Fargo, a retail bank, and he, he instituted a position of $3 billion, which I guess is spit for him, but is a lot of money for most, uh, in, in Citigroup. Now, Citigroup is a company that invests in corporations. Citigroup is, you know, the primary, uh, if you will, company supporting the Fortune 500 in the United States. Wells Fargo is a company that deals with consumers. Blankfein is saying, we got to start manufacturing more here. Buffett is taking a, a step which steps away from a consumer-oriented bank to, and, and goes into what you might argue is the most business-oriented bank in the country. So I think I think we're seeing other people come to this point of view. Yeah. And I think that we're seeing actual dollars being put up against it. So I, again, um, the whole thing about this recession is such an annoyance uh, because they've got to get rid of, you know, the inflation. But, you know, the opportunities for growth in this country is so great at this point that 2023 looks to me like it's going to be a wonderful year. Could you take a stab at where this spending might go, where this investment and lending by banks, will it be spread out regionally? Will we see a comeback to those areas of the country where jobs were hollowed out in the past, the, the rust belts? Yeah, that's where it's going. It's going to the Midwest. You've got a whole bunch of banks in the Midwest. You've got U.S. Bank Corp, which not only does lending in the areas that I'm talking about, but is probably the largest payment system for the United States government itself. And I think for the Defense Department, you've got, uh, you know, Comerica, which has got, you know, virtually its whole balance sheet oriented toward business lending. You've got KeyCorp, uh, you've got uh, Regions Financial. These are all companies which are oriented to the type of lending that, I, that I'm speaking about. Uh, they're not like, uh, you know, the, the, the banks in the Northeast, which tend to be capital markets oriented, or the banks, let's say, in the South and the West, which may tend to be more consumer oriented. Uh, so the Midwest, that's where you look for the for the investments. So it looks like we will have an, an economic recovery when we come out of the pending recession, as you're anticipating, going to be good for the economy, good for bank lending, and various sectors, including manufacturing, are going to see an upswing. That's what I think, yeah. Do you have any sense of what will be the what would be the evidence we're looking for to call the bottom of the market? Like, what is it? What are the, where do we see the green shoots? And, and when, when do you start seeing them if, if well, we do indeed get to a recession? I, I, I tend to think it's when we get a real rate of return on a financial investment. In other words, when the inflation rate is below the interest rate. Uh, that's, that to me is the bottom. Uh, and, and again, to get there, Inflation has got to come down because I don't think interest rates are going to go to 10%. But, but that's, that's, that's my trigger. That's the thing that I'm looking for. I want to see a real return on investment. This new research you have on the financial system, it makes great reading, Dick, and you covered it here comprehensively. We we'll keep watching the markets and uh, we'll see where we're headed uh, next week. Stay out, of, stay out of the crypto markets you're telling investors. Also, real investors don't play the crypto markets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a we, video game. 
<laughs> right. Video games and computer nerds and all those kind of people. Well, we'll be back next week for episode 18 of Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Fascinating, in-depth and most enjoyable conversation. We'll talk to you next week. You were just listening to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Your host was John Aiden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.